The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today we have a return visit from Dan Habib, the award-winning photojournalist, now filmmaker, now national speaker, who is a great advocate for all the rights of those of us with disabilities, neurodiversity. And he's got a great story. He's done so much. He's been on the President's Council for People with Intellectual Disabilities. Dan, welcome back. Thank you so much. The names of your movies so far are including Samuel, Who Cares About Kelsey, Mr. Connolly Has ALS, and a lot of other short films on disabilities. Is that correct? Yeah, and Intelligent Lives is the new one that I'm making now. Yeah. Tell us about the sibling relationship between Samuel and his brother. Well, it's a big part of the film, including Samuel. You know, people who want to check it out, just a free trailer. You can go to includingsamuel.com and, and you'll see a lot of interaction between Isaiah and Samuel. So when I made the movie, this was almost 10 years ago, as I said, the kids were, Samuel was between the ages of about four and seven during the three years I was filming. Isaiah was seven and 10. So now they're 18 and 20, almost 18 and 21. So very different kids now. Um, like a lot of siblings, they're, they have their own passions and those passions don't always overlap. Sometimes they do. Samuel's a huge professional sports fan, Red Sox, Patriots. We live here in New England, so you can appreciate the, the preferences. Uh, NASCAR, you know, loves, also plays uh, something called Unified Sports, which is started by the Special Olympics. It's a wonderful program where kids with and without disabilities compete on a high school team against other high schools of kids with and without disabilities. So I encourage your viewers to check out Unified Sports. But I say all that because that's kind of Samuel's passions, right? And, and he has other passions as well. He loves bird watching and, and natural disasters and weather. Isaiah has become, um, he's studying adventure education at Prescott College in Arizona. So he's learning to be a teacher, but out in the wilderness. He's a, a huge rock climber. That's his passion. So he's incredibly physical. He's incredibly physically fit. He's incredibly physical in what he does. He's a great educator. He's a, he's a naturalist. He loves, um, you know, organic farming. He's interned at organic farms. So, so they, they, they have their own interests, their own passions, but when they're together, there's an emotional bond and a, and a, and a kind of a, a brotherly bond that's incredibly strong. And in fact, one pretty cool thing that happened recently was Isaiah decided to do an independent study for school. And just this just wound up about a week ago. He ended up coming home for a few weeks and documenting his relationship with Samuel through film and through interviews and through his own writing of narration. So he's working on that film right now. So it was kind of funny because he was working on that project and I was one of his mentors for that project. I have like five films in the works right now that I'm editing. And then Sam was editing a film that he's doing on his own perspective on our downtown, which was recently rebuilt to make it much more accessible to a wheelchair and to others. So we're all working simultaneously on these films. My wife is like, I guess I should pick up a film too. But, uh, you know, so I, so to answer your question, they're very close, but like a lot of siblings, they also have their own passions and, and they don't get to spend as much time together as they would like. Well, it's one of my big regrets is that uh, Rebecca is an only child, you know, and she asked me when she was a little girl, why don't you get me a brother or sister? And I said, <laughs> you know, I asked God for so many favors and I just let you do good. I'll never ask for a favor. If I right. get you a brother or a sister. I got to ask for more favors. She goes, 
Dad, that's not how God works. He's got plenty <laughs> of love for everybody. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you segued into an interesting thing, which is what Stephen Shore talks about and, and uh, so many other of our neurodiversity leaders is harnessing the hyperinterest, which I made a, a chapter in my Asper Tools book, because our system tends not to do that. It's kind of one size fits all. And here you just described two very different individuals. They are harnessing and pursuing their hyperinterests. Some would call them obsessions. I don't. I call it an enthusiasm for stuff. And I wish that our system allowed that to get going earlier. We have interns here at different brains and all of us here are a little bit neurodiverse. <laughs> None of us, I think, would be neurotypical. I got expelled in the first grade and the 10th grade. But um, um, everybody tries everything until they find that thing that right. they really like. Like we have one intern here who shall rename Nameless, who's sitting in the room here because he'll beat me up. And uh, he tried everything, and he's a truth teller. I said, how do you like this? I don't like it. How do you like transcription? I don't like it. It turns out he likes and is very, very good at video editing, yeah. which is a talent, a skill, an art, and it pays really well. And you know, with movie making, it's all about the editing. Oh, yeah, boy, I have two I have two editors I work with regularly, and they're both brilliant, and they do far more than I could ever do. I, I direct, I produce, I write, I, I interview, I raise the money, I do everything, but I don't, do not edit. <laughs> it's a, a very specialized skill. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think your point is well taken. I think the idea of, I think, I think this also translates into education. You know, I do a lot of my film work is set in schools. And I really think, I, I think teachers work incredibly hard. I have so much respect for them. I mean, we're always asking them to do more and more and more. But I think that one of the ways education is changing that helps the neurodiverse population and, and kids like my son and your child is to do something that's called universal design for learning, which means just like a building can be universally designed so that anybody can get into it, you know, it might have uh, accommodations for people who are blind or deaf, has automatic doors for people that use wheelchairs. Um, education can be that way. There could be a lot of access points. So for instance, when my son in his English class, he has great English teachers, they might assign an assignment to him and they, or to the whole class. They might say, listen, you can listen to this. You can watch a video about it. You can do a skit. You can uh, read about it. You can go out. You can go into the community and learn about it that way. So you're giving kids five different ways. So all different kinds of learners can find their passion, their way to do it. And then when it comes time to show what you know, you can write a poem you know, perform a little a, a dialogue with somebody or skit. You can do a short film, which Samuel often does as his homework assignments. He makes a short video or a film. So I think I think it's important to give kids in, in the school realm lots of different ways to explore those passions. Because, you know, a kid might think they hate history until they watch that documentary that Ken Burns just made on Vietnam, you know, and say, wow, history is actually fascinating now that I can experience it this way. That's what society and the educational system needs to do, uh, clearly. And it's moving in that direction. It really is. I'm seeing that happen all around the country. Some of the film work I did was for a project called SWIFT, which is a big $25 million federally funded project to scale up inclusive education nationally, you know, including kids with disabilities in all aspects of school. And I was the filmmaker for that project. And uh, all the film work I did is freely available to the public. They just go to swiftschools.org. It's right there. And what I found is that a lot of classrooms around the country are moving towards 
teaching in a way that you don't have to retrofit education for kids who are different learners. You don't have to keep creating accommodations or modifications for every individual kid. You find a way to design the curriculum from the beginning so that it's accessible to all different kinds of learners. That's really the key, I think, to, to education going forward. On the filmmaking front, if someone in our audience wants to make a film, what advice would you give them with what caveats would you give them? What would you say to somebody who says, you know what, I want to make a film? Well, it's a great question. I think the first thing would be think about what your goal is for an end product, who your audience is, and, and how, um, how high level you want it to be professionally. So, for instance, I think that my son Isaiah, who's never you know, taken a film course and doesn't have a lot of money or great equipment, he took his little camera out and, and he did some short videos during one of his climbing adventures and made like a really fun, great five to seven minute film that I think will be very entertaining and engaging people. It costs nothing. It took no training. So I think I put it this way. Anybody these days who's got a smartphone or a simple camera that has a video function and has access to a, a program like iMovie or the yeah, iMovie is a very accessible one if you have a Mac or some other programs um, can make a movie. Now, how good is that movie going to be? That depends on how intuitive you are about it, how hard you work, how long you work on it, how how much you hone your skills on editing, how what an and, and what an original story it is. I mean, the story is I always say content is king. If you have a great story to tell, even if the the making of it's a little rough, um, it can still be a great film. Now that said, if you're somebody who says, you know, I want to make I want my film to be on public television, or I want my film to be in theaters, or I want it to be nationally released. Well, then you got to think about this a little more broadly. You got to bring on partners who can do the work, who already have expertise. And most people like to get paid, and so you might need to raise some money if you don't have the money. But you know, I, I including Samuel, I did for about a hundred thousand dollars. My recent films are more like a million dollars, so I've had to raise a lot of money to do this work. You know, we're about to launch a Kickstarter campaign for my new film, Intelligent Lives. So we rely on grants. We rely on. Um, individual donations. I do speaking engagements around the country where I show films and that money goes back to my project. Um, cause at UNH, I don't, I have a salary, but I don't have money really from the university to do this work. I have to, I have to raise it all myself. So I hope that gives you a sense. I mean, there's, and then there's everything in between, you know, there's that, that real organic grassroots fun. I can make a movie in two days. And then there's the, I'm going to spend three to four years making this documentary and I've got to surround myself with talented people, raise a lot of money and learn some skills. Dan, tell us about your newest project, Intelligent Lives. Sure. So I finished including Samuel back, as I said, in 2008, started showing that all around the country. And one of the questions that kept coming up on my screenings was, well, what about kids whose disabilities are more hidden, whether it's autism, whether it is a mental health issue? Um, that led to my second major project, which was Who Cares About Kelsey, which, which I did between about 2009, 2013, which examines primarily the, fe the feature film, examines a young woman with ADHD and a lot of post-traumatic stress from some difficult things in her childhood, um, and how she was on a path towards dropping out of school, probably getting addicted to drugs like many of her friends and family members, probably becoming a teen parent like many of her friends and family members, probably getting incarcerated, I mean, it was, she was on a really rocky path, as you people can see if they watch the film. Um, the school used something called positive behavioral supports, which many of your audience may be familiar with. It's rather than punishing kids and keep suspending them and expelling them and sending them to the principal's office, you really try and understand the source of the behavior and you try and use as much as possible positive incentives rather than punitive measures to get a kid on the right path. 
Um, they also used some person-centered planning with her, which is where the kid is at the center of the universe and you assemble a team around them of their choice to help them identify their dreams and hopes and goals and how to get there. So the film basically follows her for two years towards this path, which ends up being very positive, where she graduates from high school and, and is now working and doing great. So that film, plus a lot of the mini films that I did as part of that project, many of which are on students with autism, um, are at whocaresaboutkelsey.com, and they're all free you know, to watch on that site, uh, the, the shorter films. But I tell you that because this all was this progression. And what happened was when I finished Who Cares About Kelsey, and I started showing that around the country, often with Kelsey as a co-presenter, people would say, what about students with intellectual disability? You know, they're the ones who are being segregated at the highest degrees. And when I started doing research, I found that indeed only 17% of students with a label of intellectual disability are fully included in general education. The graduation rate for a real getting a regular diploma is at about 40%, very low, and the employment rate's only 15% for adults with intellectual disability having integrated meaningful employment. So those are awful, you know, awful. And so this film Intelligent Lives, which is coming out in 2018, is an attempt to really first look at the way we perceive intelligence as a society and question, is it, is it too narrow, the way we perceive intelligence? And then look back a little bit at the whole way we got here, which is IQ testing has been a, a, a huge and very damaging part of our history, which led to some very awful things that you're probably familiar with, like mass institutionalization of people with disabilities in, in the first part of the 20th century. It led to the eugenics movement, which uh, led to the forcible sterilization of about 60,000 people. It was used by Hitler, the whole eugenics movement, to justify murdering about a quarter of a million people with disabilities in, during the Holocaust. So that's our history. And the question, and it feeds into why we are still so segregated as a society when it comes to in, um, people with intellectual disabilities. But thankfully, the film is a very, I think, positive and forward-looking film because most of the film features three individuals who have a label of intellectual disability who are fully included and thriving in so many ways in high school, in college, and employment. And it tracks their journey in a very honest way. I mean, there are some challenges in each of their stories, very significant challenges. Um, and but, but the documentary really shows how our society is changing and how the whole paradigm of intelligence is shifting away from these false fixed measures of intelligence like the IQ score. Great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah, thanks. And I want to encourage your viewers to go to the website to see a preview. IntelligentLives.org has a 14-minute preview of the film and all the information. And um, we just actually started a Facebook group for that. Yeah, why don't you tell our audience now how they get a hold of you, how they look at all your projects. Let's go through sure. the whole gamut. Yeah, well, the easiest way is just go to DanHabibFilms.org. That's, that's a URL, DanHabibFilms.org. D-A-N-H-A-B-I-B-Films.org. That's got a list of all my projects and links to all my projects. Um, and, and I would say the best way to get in touch with me now or to be up to date on what's going to be happening is go to the, the website for my current film, IntelligentLives.org, and just you can contact me there directly through email. You can also um, just sign up for our e-newsletter, which comes out you know maybe every few weeks or a month. We send out some updates to people. We don't sell the list or anything like that. Uh, and then we have Facebook groups. I have my own personal Facebook, but we also have um, Facebook groups for Intelligent Lives, for including Samuel. And we have a, a, a Facebook page for my new film, Mr. Connolly Has ALS, which we haven't talked about. And I think you'll be interested in this because 
this was a film that wasn't that just came out recently. We're actually I'm actually tomorrow I'm going to the New Hampshire Film Festival to show it. And we've got a whole bunch of film festivals coming up and we're working towards broadcast of that film. It's a shorter film. It's only a half an hour long. But what happened was my son Samuel is a senior now at Concord High School. But a couple of years ago, I saw him having a conversation with the principal, Mr. Connolly. But what was so powerful is that neither one was using words verbally. They were both using communication devices to speak to each other. And I just thought, can this be happening anywhere? A student is communicating with his principal and neither one can speak. They're both using communication devices. It was very powerful. And so I decided as kind of a little side project while I was working on the Big Intelligent Lives project uh, to do a film. And I spent about five days filming in the school, Gene's home in the community. Um, I gathered a lot of archival footage of Gene before he got ill from the local community TV station. Um, and then what we did was we asked every student in the school, 1,500 kids, to think of one question they wanted to ask their principal, who at this point had lost the ability to speak and to walk. And we honed 1,500 questions down to about 50, and we, we gave them to Gene in advance so he could take some time to type up his answers because it's hard for him to type. And then we brought them down to the stage of the auditorium with lots of lights and cameras. And we filmed kind of like StoryCorps style, if you're familiar with the StoryCorps approach of NPR. Um, we filmed them asking Gene these questions one after another. And that's the, and very, very intense and personal questions. I mean, one student asked, um, have you ever considered killing yourself? And he answers very honestly. So the, the, the real spine of the film is this question and answer session between the kids but we intercut that with all the footage I shot in school and in the back and in the background. And what I think came together in the film was certainly it's a film about a remarkable person, a remarkable leader who's dealing with this devastating and fatal illness of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, but it also shows how a person that was so committed to inclusive education at the high school, to including kids like my son Samuel, who became a big part of the film as well, has now become the one who is disabled and is now asking the school to include him. And it's a very, very powerful and philosophical film in a way about coming to terms with a fatal illness, about what it means to be fully human, about how people are perceived once they lose their ability to speak. So I, I'm really proud of this film and it's a very emotional film. And again, if people go to the Facebook page for Mr. Connolly has ALS, they'll be able to get a sense of um, how to stay on top of the broadcast and film screenings for that one as well. And, and watch a trailer there. All my films have trailers so they can watch them on any of the websites. Well, Dan Habib, it was great having you back here at Exploring Different Brains again. We'd like you back as much as you can. You're doing so much and you're so inspirational. Thank you so much for being with us here. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.